Hello and welcome to the Tisalti Podcast Series. Welcome everybody to uh, another edition of the Tafauti podcast, uh, where this time I'm joined with Richard Bonham. Um, like many of the conservation experts that are joining us on this Tafauti pod, he doesn't need much introduction when it comes to uh, this field. He grew big life from a hum- humble four scout operation across the Amboseli ecosystem to now having a sizable operation across over 300,000 acres of Maasai land. He set up the Maasai Land Preservation Trust, providing health clinics, schools, and wildlife scholarship programs. He also pioneered a predator compensation program with an economic incentive-based approach to try and turn the tide of the looming extinction of a lot of the predators in the area. Welcome, Richard. Um, Thank you for joining us on the Tefauti podcast. Well, thanks very much for the invite. Very happy Uh, to be with you. Good, Richard. Now, just to sort of um, kick this off and to give people some perspective and, of course, scale, I think, um, of just quite how how big big life has become. Um, what is the size of the operation now? And just give us a little bit of an insight into the history. Well, yeah, as you said, we started Humble Beginnings. Um, I think it was four Game Scouts back in the early 90s. And um, we've now grown to... I think we just crossed the 500 employee mark, of which about 320 are guys in uniform, rangers in uniform, and then the other, the rest of various programs, be it education, outreach, healthcare, and all, all the other stuff that goes on the peripheries. So, yeah, we. I'm covering at the moment directly sort of core area of about 1.6 million acres, but it's certainly not limited to that. And we go sometimes quite a long way out, um, firefighting or when we're called in to help um, on various issues. Um, we work very closely with KWS. They're our main partners, obviously. Um, we work with them on, in Rhino Conservation in the Chulu National Park. And then Amboseli National Park as well, where we support KWS as they support us. And sort of you said you alluded to sort of the 1.6 million acres of of sort of wilderness. Um, And there's sort of it's been it's been a process, hasn't it, Richard? How do you sort of, I, I guess, grow exponentially? Is it sort of dealing with communities, engaging and understanding the complexities on the ground with different tribal communities? I mean, that's very much sort of uh, how I, I'm assuming big life has grown and, and, and how have you been able to sort of manage that? Yeah, I think I probably need to explain how this ecosystem works first. You've got to think of the Amboseli ecosystem as Amboseli National Park as the hub, um, but that's only 100,000 acres um, with a, a, a very strong wetland um, bank in the middle of it. And the rest of the land is privately owned by Maasai. They, this land at the moment is under sort of group ranch status, so it's communally owned, although that is changing as we speak. So our ma- mandate is to work with the group ranches, um, with the Maasai community. And um, so, yeah, it's, 
that growth has been sort of organic. It just started here on the edge of the Chulu Hills, addressing some poaching issues. Well, it was really bad poaching in, you know, back then in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. So it started on that. And then I soon realized that if conservation is going to work here, you have to involve the communities. They're the guys who make the final decision. They're the guys affected by living with wildlife. So it was very clear they had to be engaged. So how do we engage them? Primarily, um, it started with employment. Then that spread to um, generating revenue streams that wildlife derived, natural resources derived, and bringing them into the picture and, and trying to get the, the wildlife from the debit column into the credit column. You know, when I say the debit column, I, I probably need to explain it. Living with wildlife is a very expensive business. You just take the carnivores. And we've got them all here. We've got lion, leopard, cheetah, and jackal, hyena. So the Maasai being pastoralists rely on their livestock. Now, livestock's easy pickings if you're a predator. It's much easier to pull down a cow than a zebra. So they're incurring, you know, large losses from back in the, the 80s. It was you know, a very strong predator population here. And as the landowners have moved out of their traditional culture, which is basically just cattle and cattle, nothing else, and now needing to send kids to school, wanting to buy a motorbike, wanting to have a car, and all, all the trimmings of the Western world as we know it. So they ended up not tolerating the losses which they previously absorbed. Um, so, you know, that's one thing that brings wildlife into the negative. Then you've got wildlife carrying disease, carry ticks. They compete with, um, with wildlife for... Uh, grass and water and then of course you've got crop raiding um, the area along the, the shoulders of Kilimanjaro is um, very rich and has uh, um, it's got potential to generate some you know, good cash crops so you start getting elephant moving into them and eland and whatever you know, they, what is somebody's, um, what they're relying on for a whole year to support their families can be destroyed in five minutes. So we need to try and compensate for those losses and, and bring some positivity to it. Um, so yeah, to swing back on the question. Yeah. Through employment. Um, that's a big one, you know, employing 500 people alone, you know, is, makes us one of the biggest employees in the, in the whole ecosystem. It supports a lot of people. And then generating revenue, key. So doing that through ecotourism, um, tourists coming into the area, we operate, pay conservation fees, they pay lease fees for lodges. And that needs to be fed back into the community so they see those benefits. Um, and then education. 
has also been one of our priorities. There's a huge hunger for education. Um, the way the educational system set up here in Kenya, it's largely out of reach for the, the, the people sort of standard of living in this area. So we set up a bursary program, taking kids from primary school all the way up to um, university. Uh, I think right now we've got about 300 kids on bursaries. And, you know, we graduated over a thousand. So that's all, you know, getting conservation into the household. And hopefully when these guys come out of the educational system, they're going to support conservation. Yeah, and sure. then you know, healthcare is also a big one. Again, you know, healthcare is pretty basic here yeah, and, and being able to reach out and, and help families um, um, do primary healthcare. That's another way of getting conservation into the household as well and also make a difference to people's lives. So there's no silver bullet in, in what we're doing. It's a, it's a combination of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, uh, you know, in a lot of conversations that we've been having on uh, this podcast series around conservation has been sort of creating a value uh, that doesn't always have to be monetary, um, but there has to, in some ways, people start realising that the benefits, some of which you've just listed there through healthcare, education, etc., uh, and employment, uh, aren't always necessarily money orientated, but um, you touched on it briefly there, Richard, around the uh, community and uh, sort of understanding the complexities of it, but also the predator compensation uh, project. Can you just tell us a little bit about it? Because it's something quite unique that Big Life uh, set up. Yeah, it's something we're very proud of. Um, again, need to turn the clock back in the sort of mid 80s when I came here we had a very strong predator pop population then I watched it crash and the, by the mid 90s you you wouldn't see a lion I think we went seven years without seeing a lion and that was because of the retribution taken by the livestock owners um, killing off poisoning spearing whatever um, the, the main predators so it was you know, in dialogue with the elders and with the community, you know, we said, you know, how are we going to stop it? Because just going out and arresting guys for killing predators, whatever, doesn't work, never work. And they said, well, it's simple. You just pay us to replace our livestock that we lose and we'll stop the killing. Uh, it was quite controversial. Um, so we, we, we dived in and just you know i think the numbers speak for themselves when we started the program in 203 um we reckon we had something between 15 and 25 land in the whole ecosystem and last year the count took us over 200 and that wasn't counting um <coughs> cubs so they bounced back as have cheetah leopard hyena and the, the community bought into it um and it, it's it's certainly working it's a struggle raising money for it you know when you go and ask people you know can you donate to 
a fund that's going to pay for dead cows. It's yeah. um, quite a difficult sell. Um, but the reality is it works. And it keeps the uh, predators alive. Yeah, absolutely. On, I mean, it, it, it all linked to the value piece, isn't it? Because, yeah. uh, and compensation, uh, you know, when you're talking about the communities you're, you're talking about, you know, the Maasai who, you know, they're, their bank balance is on the hoof, isn't it? It's the cattle yeah. that are walking yeah. around. So it's like, yeah. you know, it's like theft for us from our bank. Um, and so you can kind of understand, uh, but then they're obviously roaming lands that are wildlife orientated as well. So it, it is a tricky one, isn't it? Especially when it comes to, as you say, trying to find uh, funding specifically uh, raised for that, that, that sort of sole predator scheme. Yeah, it's very difficult, but you know, the results show themselves. So you know, it's you know coming a little bit easier now. But also on the back of that, you know, you have to take into account lion hunting has always been deeply embedded in the Maasai culture. You know, warriors when they go through the warrior stage and the age group system, um, they need to kill a lion, and they get renamed. It makes them popular with the girls and all that. So despite being paid, the warriors still want, wanted to hunt and they still do. So again, this came, it was homegrown. It came from the elders. You know, we were talking to them, you know, we, how are we going to stop these warriors just going on you know, sort of cultural hunts? And they said, well, we've got to set them up another challenge. And, you know, let's, let's turn to sport and see if we get them competing with one another and show their progress in other ways. So then we kicked that off, I think about four or five years ago. And uh, the Warriors bought into it very quickly. Um, it's, uh, it's not just the competition, the big Olympic day that we have every two years where all of different warrior um, villages compete. There's a whole educational process behind it, um, which we use the training for. So they, we bring in instructors to, you know, whether it's running or um, um, javelin throwing and, and all the other events. We use that to as a sort of draw to educate them on the benefits of wildlife and the upside and and also the financial incentive that you know the winners um get cash prizes they get um bulls um and you know they you get a status in the community so it's win-win and it seems to be working you know since we started the olympics those cultural hunts have drop pretty much to zero so just um, for the yeah. listeners out there they um big big life um decided i guess you know as as richard sort of pointed out that the conservation and sport could uh be linked and i guess i'm also a bit of a product of of that same thing um but within this ethos is sort of as you say the cultural ingrained uh approach of sort of living in and amongst wildlife and and sort of adapting a warrior's uh, progression 
when I, I don't know Marseille gets to sort of 18 isn't it Richard you can you can correct me if I'm wrong where he has to wrestle or kill a lion with his bare hands was traditionally how the culture used to be and uh, and so with you guys with Big Life have tried to sort of adapt that to sort of showing your your talents and your power and your skill set uh, in a very different way utilizing the skills that they already have. So your javelin to sort of replace the spear throwing, et cetera, et cetera. So that there is sort of collaborative uh, sort of overlap between the culture and the sport. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, spot on, spot on. Explained it very well. Okay, so, and, and that's all linked off the back of the, was that all connected to the predator compensation project or were they kind of in isolation just sort of trying to tackle the cultural issue, um, Richard? Yeah, it, it evolved out of the um, compensation because um, we were stopping the sort of retribution-linked killing, but we weren't stopping the, the cultural hunting. And so, yeah, it grew out of it, essentially, and is a key part of it. Okay, and that's and that's an event that uh, you know you you gather funding for, and it's as you say every other every other year, so every two years. Um, and it, does that then? I guess I'm what, what I'm trying to ask you is, does that then stop warriors in its entirety, or and do they only proceed through the Olympics, or are they nominated people from various communities that that take part in the Olympics? They compete to get into the team. So we have regionals. Um, we've got four, what we call them warrior villages, manyatas in the ecosystem, which are clan-based. So we go to Manyata A and say to them, okay, guys, bring forward your best runners, your best spear throwers, um, your best jumpers. Then they compete and build a team from that manyata. And then they... They have their regionals, they compete on a regional basis, and then the, the winning teams then come together for the final event, which is, is every two years, and that's where the big competition is. And it draws, you know, I think the last one we had, just community members, we probably had 2,000 people there, all coming to watch their warriors perform. Yeah, and then as you say, sort of, almost the winners uh, the, go back with nice prizes and medals and so yes um but yeah. the predator uh, so you've seen an, a, a spike sort of from the the predators through the compensation project and then also obviously through the the cultural adaptation but just one point about all of that which it just takes it takes a long time doesn't it to sort of bring about any change i mean the maasai are no different to any culture um you know, and, and, and this has all been a process of kind of being ingrained, uh, understanding on the ground and then sort of adapting and, and trying things out. Would that, would that be fair? Yeah. It's trial and error. Um, and, you know, one thing leads to another. You know, the Olympics growing out of the compensation is a great example of that. Yeah. Um, another thing that grew out of it, um, which... Um, an outfit called the Land Guardians operate here. Um, they take on warriors to monitor lands in their Pacific zones. So the role of these warriors is to, you know, go out every day, track land, find out where they are, establish who they are, 
pride structures and all that, and then warn livestock owners, um, don't go into that area, there's a pride of land. Or, and so that, again, creates more wildlife-based employment and gets the word out that, you know, I, I'm employed by, you know, for looking after land, don't mess with them. It's like they're cows. Mm. So, yeah, and, and another um, very important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of adaptive, as you say, creative approach that sort of, I guess, understands the people and the communities you're working with and, and brings some form of value to, to wildlife uh, sort of roaming the same, the same vast areas. Um, just to sort of finish off, Richard, uh, so many of our listeners are always trying to find out different ways of uh, getting involved in conservation. And it's not always easy when you're sort of from a distance perspective, current climate obviously understood, um, slightly disjointed uh, from sort of the practicalities of getting on the ground. What would be your your um, your sort of advice, should I say, for people to sort of get involved in 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 conservation efforts in in some some way? Well, I think it largely depends on you know where where they are. Um, obviously, if you're living in Kenya. Um, or in Africa or wherever, um, getting active involved, like the likes of me and the rangers, uh, whoever else is, is, is working on the programs, um, you know, hands-on on the ground. But if, you know, that's not possible, then being active in fundraising, um, you know, this is a conservation is an expensive game. And, it needs substantial funding to to keep on the road. You know, whether it's security, something like Maasai Olympics or um, compensation, education, it's, it all requires money. And everyone is, is in need of um, support and actively trying to um, fundraise for whatever program. Awareness, you know, the more awareness that's out there, people you know, take Ivory, you know, the fact you know, that's been a really successful thing which built around awareness. Gone are the days when most of the Western world would buy a ivory trinket or ring or bracelet, whatever. So, and that's an educational thing and created by advocates, basically, um, to spread the word that by buying ivories. So, you know, the more people speaking and shouting about the wrongs of it, then it's obviously going to have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, the awareness piece, it doesn't matter where you are, anywhere in the world, um, you can sort of get involved and, and, and start um, spreading the word. Uh, as you say, found, uh, funding is a massive a massive thing, especially when you're running an operation the size of the size of Big Life. So um, just to, just to say a big thank you, Richard, for joining us uh, on the Tabati Pod and giving us some insight into some of the amazing initiatives that you've grown over over such a big time that that Big Life has sort of been in that sort of Amboseli ecosystem area. And uh, we wish you all the best with sort of getting through this pandemic, of course, and then, of course, pushing on to just try and do what you can to sort of save the, the wildlife species in those areas. So thank you so much for joining us. Great chat. Bye.
I'm Krista Cullen. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to know more about Tafalti and our projects, please do visit us on tafalti.org. T-O-F-A-U-T-I. 